History has been made, and the best place to find out about it is right here on the front page of the dusty old newspaper, Iceman and Coach. We're going to get into a lot of things here this week on Iceman and Coach. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Iceman and Coach. This is Matt Freights, the Iceman. That is the coach, Brad Powell. Brad, how you doing, buddy? It's good to see that face. Iceman, uh, doing great as always. A highlight of the week coming here for the Iceman and Coach Sports Show as always. I am getting excited. Have a big family vacation coming up next week. We're going down south. Going to hit a beach, enjoy some warm weather down the Gulf Shores area. Really excited about that. I tell you what, though, locally here, as we've talked about several times on the show, the weather is so weird here in central Illinois. And, you know, it goes from, like I said, you wake up in the morning and it's freezing. You got to scrape your windshield. And by the time you get off work, you could go swimming some days. But today we had so much wind. It was insanely windy and probably about an hour south of where I live or so down south of Springfield, Illinois, which is the capital. They had to shut down a major interstate, Interstate 55, because there was such strong winds that it was blowing the the dirt and the dust out of the fields. And they had like, I mean, whatever the equivalent, a brownout, whatever conditions. There was zero visibility. And apparently there was a major, major accident that involved two semis. One was a tanker, several cars, uh, dozens of cars. It sounded like there were several fatalities. Um, and I'm like, I've never heard of anything like this before. I mean, obviously we've heard of snowstorms and the accidents that happen in some of those situations with ice, but a major accident caused by blowing dust. Uh, that is a first. And I mean, obviously, it's, it was tragic and uh, thoughts go out to everyone involved. But it, it just caught me off guard. I'm like, that's absolutely insane. And then on top of it, I believe the tanker truck exploded. And so there was smoke and fire and dust. I mean, I saw a couple of pictures that looked apocalyptic in ways. You know what's great is I was going to pivot and start the show on an aside and talk about our friendship and how much it means to me, but I really can't follow that up with death and destruction and all that stuff as you have started the show off on a very, very positive note. And I want to spin it positively, though, about the wind. It's been really windy here, too. Saturday, we were outside a lot. It was a really beautiful day, and James likes to be outside, and it's actually better for the parents if the kids are outside for as long as possible. And let them run off a little bit of energy and so forth. He's been throwing the Frisbee a lot. He really loves to play Frisbee. Neighbor kid came over to play Frisbee with him. He's probably 10, he's probably 10 years old or something like that. And James just does really well with him. So all of a sudden we hear, oh no, well, the 10 year old threw the damn Frisbee on the damn roof. So that ended that really, really quickly. And James looks at me and says, daddy, will you go get it? And I'm like, you know, I think the rain will go get it. Well, the wind blew it down today. And I took major fucking credit for getting that thing down. <laughs> did you tell him that you uh, you called for the winds and they came in? Or did you just play it off like, yep, while you were taking a nap or while you were at school today, but I climbed up there and got that frisbee for you? He asked me a pointed question. Daddy, did you get on the ladder to get it? You betcha, son. Hey, that's all that matters, man. You were the hero. You saved the day. And really, the most important thing is that he has his frisbee back. That is correct. He does have his frisbee back. He was very, very excited about that. But yeah, the weather has been weird. And I feel like it's sort of in line with how crazy sports have been. The other night I was on the live stream with the guys from Political Football for the first round of the draft. We're not gonna get into the first round of the draft. We will talk draft a little bit later. But one of the things I mentioned on that live stream, and I think you were there for a part of it, was how chaotic sports has been this year. Outside of the Kansas City Chiefs winning the Super Bowl, which was a pretty much 
I think we all saw that coming or could see that coming as a as a reasonable outcome. Ever since then, though, it has been crazy. And right now, I think I'm going to make a statement and I need your blessing on this. Right now, South Florida, specifically the Miami area, is the epicenter of sports right now. That's a fair statement. That's a fair statement. It took me a minute. I was like, yeah, because the Marlins are terrible. But like I would say, yes, between the, the Panthers and obviously the Heat, 100 percent. Which is amazing because that has not historically been a very heavy sports town. I mean, when you live in a place like that in Florida or California, sports is like this, too. There's so much else to do. And going to a sporting event, especially an indoor sporting event, sometimes doesn't carry the same weight as doing literally anything else out there. But Miami right now is celebrating a lot. The Heat obviously limped into the playoffs and took out the number one seed. I think that's only happened like six times. And last night, the Freights family had what I have to be or has to be considered. It's a travesty. It's almost like a loss in the family. My father is a very big Boston sports fan. He has been for his entire life. He's 76 years old or almost 76. And the Boston Bruins had the best regular season in NHL history. That's not debatable. By the numbers, no matter how you slice it, it was amazing. And they lost last night four games to three to the eight-seed Florida Panthers. And my father has to be distraught. He's got to be downtrodden. And I don't know when I'll talk to him again. He'll probably come out of the doldrums of all of this. But in both of these particular cases, it made me think of something. It made me think of fandom. And you've actually talked to me offline before about the toxicity of fandom. And I want to play something for you. It's a clip you and I have both heard, but I want to play it for the listeners. And it's Giannis Antetokounmpo, who's probably one of the best players in the NBA. He was asked a very pointed question after their loss to the Heat eliminated them. And this is what he had to say. Do you view this season as a failure? <sighs> oh, my God. Uh... You asked me the same question last year, Eric. Okay, uh, do you get do you get a promotion every year on your job? No, right. So every year you work is a failure. Yes or no? No. Every every year you work, you work towards something, towards a goal, right? Which is to get a promotion, to be able to uh, take care of your family, to be able I don't know, um, provide the house for them or take care of your parents. You work towards a goal. It's not a failure. It's steps to success. Michael Jordan played 15 years, won six championships. The other nine years was a failure? That's what you're telling me? No, I'm asking you a question. Yes or no? Okay, exactly. So why are you asking me that question? It's a wrong question. There's no failure in sports. This is not specific to any fan base, but I think it happens a lot in these fan bases that are not satisfied with winning. The Bucks just won a championship two years ago. Boston has seen a litany of championships. And yet today, fan bases from both of those sides are probably calling for somebody's head, whether it's the coach, whether it's the player, the GM, whatever. And I wanted to get into a philosophical discussion with you about fandom, the toxicity of fandom, and whether we as fans are entitled to shit. Well, first of all, I want to give you credit for pronouncing his last name expertly. Uh, there is zero way I would have gotten through that successfully. So kudos to you. I love talking about fandom. It's such an interesting topic. And first and foremost, I think there's something very romantic about being a passionate sports fan. You know, like the stupid movie Fever Pitch with Jimmy Fallon and how obsessed he is with the Red Sox, which I'm sure you're very familiar with growing up in the Northeast. Obviously, some of the things that he's involved with, they're a little extreme, but those things do exist out there in the world. And I think that the reason people are so passionate about sports is it is a distraction from everyday life. It's it's almost like being in a relationship. I mean, you you love this thing, but in a weird way, unlike another person, the only way they can reciprocate you is by, I guess, winning and you being able to go along for the ride as a fan. That being said, I do believe that 
we as fans get a little too invested and let it impact our day-to-day lives in different ways. Especially, you know, if you want to be depressed because your team lost or lost a big series or lost a championship, you want to be bummed out about it for a day or two. I, I think that's fair. But at the point where you see people going at some of these players, coaches, executives in a very personal way, as if they owe them something, as if they weren't out there trying their absolute best to win, as if they could, they themselves could have done better. I do think that's ridiculous. It's it's very strange when you think about it. You, you see people chastising uh, professional athletes the same way that they're yelling at the manager at McDonald's when they screw their order up. And um, maybe we shouldn't be surprised by that this day and age. I, I don't want to focus so much on the negative, because, but there is a lot of it. But it, really, initially, I, I just want to say I do think, like I said at the beginning, there is something very romantic about being a sports fan and being invested in something that you don't have any control over, as long as you can manage to do it in a healthy way. I firmly agree with you on that, and I think that being a fan can be very, very healthy. Having a rooting interest in a team that you're emotionally attached to, there's nothing wrong with that. But when I hear questions like this, now I don't want to put this reporter on blast here because this reporter is doing their job. They're asking what I consider a fair question at the end of the day, because if you're the number one seed in any professional sport, the expectations are that you're going to be vying for the championship even if you don't win it. And if you have a historic season and you lose in this kind of fashion, It is embarrassing, and I think that it's at least warranted to ask questions like this. But what I wanted to ask you is, where is the line? Because you talked about a healthy relationship with the team, and I wonder to myself sometimes if we, the fans, feel as if we own more of the team than we actually do. Because there's something about that we are passionately into it, and so therefore we care more, and we feel as if these teams and these executives should care as much as we do. But if you think about all the people in the fan base, there's no way that they could play K2 all of that because fans are emotional, people are emotional. And I do wonder if the criticism is fair at times. Like today, right now in Boston, is it fair after the season that they had to get up, call WEEI and call in and say that the team sucks and they're a failure? I understand they didn't win the Stanley Cup, but they had an excellent season by literally every other metric. And for me, I feel like when you don't remember how hard it is to win, it's very, very difficult. Regular season success is one thing. Do it in the playoffs is another thing. And we've seen countless teams falter in the playoffs and not be able to get to the promised land because only one team gets to do it every year. I wanted to get your thoughts on that part of it. Well, these are the best athletes in the world, right? Uh, Playing at the highest level. And this is their profession. This is their livelihood. And yeah, we could argue and debate maybe another day if if they're overpaid for what they do and whatever. But the reality is that they get paid a lot of money. Uh, They're very successful. And I do think that, sure, there are certainly athletes that get to a point where they do look at it as more of a job than maybe the having been driven by the passion of winning championships. From a fan's perspective, I think you know the line in the sand is when it becomes personal. Uh, you're you're totally, I think, entitled to feel however you want to feel. But when it comes to taking personal shots at members of the organization, I do have a problem with that. And then the counter argument might be, well, with the amount of money they're making, so on and so forth, that that's what they've opened themselves up for. But I think you could be critical without being. Uh, demeaning, rude, derogatory, any of those things. And at the same time, I think fans are an important part of an organization. And obviously you can't placate everybody and you shouldn't, but fans are very important from a financial standpoint, for one, buying tickets, buying merchandise, but also from a cultural standpoint. I think that you have some of these fan bases that have sort of taken on a life of their own. You think like Bill's Mafia, you know, the Black Hole with the Raiders, some of that, you know, they've taken on this persona and it's just become part of the culture and the environment that surrounds the team, you know, the terrible towel and 
Pittsburgh, and we could go on all day long about different ones. But it's very important, and I do think that franchises have to, you know, they have an obligation to try to put the best product on the field to be successful. I think that's, you know, from a front office point, that's their obligation to the fans. But when that, we could debate what happens when that doesn't seem to be the case. But overall, when it becomes personal, where you're taking personal attacks, personal shots at, at members of the organization, I think that's where it's an issue. You want to call the radio show and say, hey, I'm really unhappy with this. I wish that management would have done this differently, that differently. I think that's fair. But to you know, call the season a failure after what you said, a historically great season by all accounts. You know, probably a number of franchises would trade places with the Bruins in a second if they could. But Boston's had, you know, they've had a really good few decades here at sports. And like you said, they've almost forgotten how hard it is to win and to be the successful. I have such an issue with Boston sports fans. And I want to say this out front that I am one of you. I love my Boston sports teams, or at least the Red Sox and the Patriots. I don't really follow the Celtics or the Bruins all that much. I'm more of a global a global fan of the NBA and a global fan of hockey because I just love playoff hockey. But the, you're right, though. They have forgotten what it's like to be losers. Boston, for a really long time, were lovable losers. Actually, not even that lovable in some ways. But they were losers regardless. And the Cubs fans know everything about that and how long it took to bring glory to the, the city of Chicago, for at least part of it anyway. And just because there's been a lot of success doesn't mean that there is a lot of failure. I mean, yes, you're going to go through periods where you're not going to win. But Giannis being asked that question and being a foreign player, being the best player out there playing hurt, to be asked that question, I understand why he's frustrated. And that's one part of sports that's so fascinating. You and I have a bad day at work. We go home, you pour a glass of whiskey, whatever your vice is, you podcast like we do, and you go about your day. The next day, it resets. When Giannis gets off the court, he's got a microphone shoved into his face, and he has to answer to his bad game or his team's bad game or his coach's poor decision-making or what have you, and it's just such a unique situation. And We haven't yet found that happy medium to where these players can have a little bit of a cool-off, and I know a lot of people were saying, like, well, they, they were failures because they didn't make the finals, and I'm like, they just won the championship two years ago. When did we become such, what have you done for me lately in sports, especially with these franchises that haven't seen success in forever, like forever. Are Cubs fans turning into this now? Are Cubs fans going to all of a sudden become, well, the team stinks because we haven't won since 2017 when they went 100 years without winning it? I do think there are some pretty disgruntled Cubs fans. Uh, my father being one of them here a couple years ago when they offloaded all the guys that were part of that team, Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, so on. Uh, my dad basically swore off the Cubs when that happened. He's, he's like, they're not even trying to win this is ridiculous and you know and and i'm sure there are people in the chicago area that are just the same but i do think that there are a few cities around this country where the passion about sports from a fan perspective is on another level chicago is one of those cities i think boston new york to some degree philadelphia like places like that i think you know you say buffalo when we're talking bills but the intensity, the passion that comes from those fan bases in those cities is absolutely insane. You don't hear, you know, now I get that, you know, and I gosh, I'm, I'm going to pull a perfect INC moment here, but Giannis still plays for the Bucks, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's like, so Milwaukee isn't one of those cities you wouldn't think necessarily where you would consider them to be a highly passionate fans. I mean, I'm sure they are, but compared to those other cities, they're not. But you're not going to hear questions like that so much in like LA or Denver, uh, some of these other places, Seattle, you know, there's just even the media is probably a little softer in those places than you'd get in some of these more passionate cities, for lack of a better term. Do you think that it's fair that these cities actually do dictate how some of these attitudes come about? Because Milwaukee, as you pointed out, they got the Brewers, they got the Bucks, and really they don't have four professional teams there, at least 
as far as I know that they don't. And I don't ever find either of those fan bases to be super, super passionate. I mean, the Bucks were really bad for a while. The Brewers were really bad for a while. And you kind of have those ebbs and flows. And right now, the Bucks have one of the best players of our of our generation, of our lifetime, basically playing for them. And they're probably going to be in contention for a while. It's just amazing how winning changes all of that. But I do believe that the narrative of the media changes it a lot too, because when you're in Boston and you have such a mainstay in WEEI and you listen, and the people that are on the radio station are so negative about the team. I remember my father, every time I go visit him, and he's kind of like your dad. Like I was going to ask, does anything make your dad happy in sports outside of Bradley basketball? Because he's sworn off the NFL, he's sworn off the Cubs. Anything else we need to add to the list? Not that I can think of at this moment, but I tell you what, talking about fathers in this situation um, and fans, it kind of fits within this. It's outside of pro sports, but we've talked about wrestling a little bit here. And we talked a little bit when we were leading up to the national tournament. There's a, a young man that wrestled for Iowa for the last, really the last six years with COVID and his injuries named Spencer Lee. And he was a three-time national champion. He got beat this year on his uh, quest for a fourth. He's always been regarded coming out of high school as one of the best wrestlers in the country and was sort of expected to go go to college, win four national championships, go to the Olympics, win a couple gold medals. But he's been plagued by injuries ever since his junior year of high school. I mean, he wrestled his senior year of high school with one torn ACL, won the national championship his sophomore year of college with zero ACLs. Both of them were torn. It's, it's battled shoulder surgeries, everything else. So anyways, he had, med- after he got beat at the National Wrestling Tournament this year, NCAAs, he medically forfeited out of the tournament because he just couldn't continue. People, when this happened, went at his parents. And his parents have been, I mean, we're talking, I'm talking Iowa fans, like verbally assaulted his mom and dad at the arena, at the hotel. And these people are the biggest cheerleaders for Iowa wrestling, Iowa sports, Iowa everything, and just the nicest people, you know, as far as I can tell by all accounts. And the reason I found this out is um, the U.S. Open just happened, which is a one of the pathways to qualifying for the world team that lets you compete for the Olympic team and so on. And Spencer Lee entered it to compete for a spot. And he won his first few matches. And then it said like he was going to be in like the semifinals. And a news release came out that said Spencer Lee has withdrawn from the U.S. Open because of injuries. Like can't compete. So there's an outlet called Flow Wrestling that does great wrestling coverage. And they did an interview with his father, Larry, about 20 minute interview. And his dad basically like lays all this out there that none of us really knew and talked about how, you know, him and his wife were being verbally accosted by people, by fans, like you said, at the arena, back at the hotel. I mean, I guess it was so bad that his mom has said that, you know, she didn't even come to the U.S. Open. She's like, it's too soon. Like, and he, he probably shouldn't have competed, but he was hoping he could skate by, win the U.S. Open, and then he would have a break for a while before he'd have to compete again and maybe get healthy. And it just didn't work out. And, uh, you know, they talk about how his parents, it's so hard because you've watched a kid that has done everything to try to succeed and just has had really terrible luck at, with injuries. And they say, especially when it comes to something like wrestling, as opposed to maybe your big time football players, they're like, these guys go to, you know, fans don't know what these guys are going going through on a daily basis like these guys actually go to class every day they might have been up till three o'clock in the morning studying for a big exam you know maybe uh you know there was a kid that went out and wrestled the next day like his mom died the day before or something like that and he went out the next day wrestled didn't wrestle very well and the fans were letting him have it on all the message boards and social media and he's like people just don't realize what these are kids that are putting it out there you have no idea what they're going through how do you feel so entitled to sit there and attack them in the way that you're doing and obviously, it's a little different at the professional level than the college level. But I think it kind of speaks to the craziness that does come along with some fans, for sure. But is it really different, though? 
philosophically, is it different? They're still no. human beings. They're pay, They're getting paid a lot of money. I remember listening to a hockey podcast. This is probably last year when listening to other sports shows to try to get a flavor of what other people are doing. And it was a Canadian guy who was doing a hockey show and he talked about how for his team, I can't remember what team it was, one of the guys had missed a couple of games because his wife had their first child. And he said, I know I'm going to get flack for this, but he should not have missed that time. Like you, you know that you got to be there for this game. You can't be having kids. And I'm like, Oh, like you can't be saying that kind of stuff. Like these are real people just because they're athletes and they get paid money. And don't forget, not every single athlete is getting paid the max contract in whatever sport they're playing. There's a lot of guys who are trying to just make it. They're trying to continue to be in the league and be relevant. And we talked offline about Drew Maggi, I think, for the Pirates and how 33 years old, guy finally gets called up to the majors. And that guy's not making millions. He's not all of a sudden living this cush lifestyle. So what, is he supposed to stop having a life because you feel that the team is more important? It's just weird how some of this stuff has come about. And you're 100% right. If you're a fan who has verbally accosted somebody, no matter where you've seen them, or you have tried to do something because you are not happy with their play in the field and all that, then you really need to stop being a fan of sports. It's not healthy for you. You should not be allowed to be around these people. Because again, are there asshole athletes there? Of course there are. Are there asshole owners and organizations? Of course there are. Not every team is going to meet your expectations. Not every team is going to win the championship every single year. Take what you can get because at its core, sports is wonderful. And these kinds of things, they ruin it for me. They ruin the good stories. The Florida Panthers should be the story. The Miami Heat should be the story. Not Giannis and whether it was a failure. The Miami Heat turned it on in the playoffs. Earlier this month or last month, remember I asked the question about whether upsets are a little cliche now? This is what sports is all about. These stories of the engine that could, Jimmy Butler all of a sudden turning it on, willing a team that had been mediocre all year to the playoffs into a playoff victory, and they look like they could go to the NBA Finals. And the Florida Panthers, a team, again, that figured out how to win halfway through the season and has a historic upset. They will always be remembered. That's what sports is all about, and we should remember that. And when we think about sports history, what are some of the greatest sports stories you can think of? They're all, they're the comebacks, they're the underdogs, right? The upsets. Other than the only ones that aren't, that don't fit in that category that are really popular are like teams that were just extraordinarily dominant. Other than that, it's the underdog stories. You know, the Red Sox coming back against the Yankees being down 3-0 um, and to win in seven and go to the World Series and finally get it done. You know, those types of stories and or the Cubs finally getting over the hump and stuff like that. Those are the things that everyone remembers. And I love upsets. I love upsets. I love underdogs, you know, and like, it's like they say, that's why you play the game, right? That's why you go out there and uh, play the game to begin with. If it was played on paper uh, based off the seat, this is the higher seeded team or whatever. I mean, it'd be a waste of time. And, and when I talk about verbally accosting, I'm not, I want to make it clear. Like I am not opposed to a good ribbing of the opposing team or opposing players within the boundaries of proper decorum, uh, which I'm sure are not followed everywhere. <laughs> but I love some good trash talk, and I'm all about that. It's just when you have fans that will turn coat on their own team in a second based off the outcome of a single game or series, that's just embarrassing, truthfully. I mean, in most cases, you're a grown adult, and you should behave like one. I, I don't know. I just be better, do better. I personally love the threats that are empty. Like, I'm never going to watch this team again. The team probably isn't going to care. The league isn't going to care. That kind of stuff. I love empty threats like that. I also love it when you talk about it on radio, too, how a lot of the radio people will be like, if this team loses, I'll never watch them again. And I'm like, okay, it's just a stunt. It's a PR stunt. And from a fan's perspective, your dad has to have turned on a Cubs game between then and now. 
I don't know. Uh, maybe I, I've had him on a couple of times. I'll kind of stand there and watch him. He's kind of seems like he's cooled off on it a little bit. Um, even the NFL, like he's finally this year, he's, he's talked like he's made a few comments to me talking Bears draft picks and things like that. So he's he's coming around. And uh, speaking of that, and not to get too far off course on our, our plan here, but the NFL, is there a brand out there, not just in sports, but anywhere that is seemingly is untouchable as the NFL. It really seems like the NFL can do no wrong. And even if they do make a make what people would perceive as a misstep, they have a way of just making it disappear almost instantly. And it's like it never happened. I don't know if the NFL is bulletproof, but I think what has happened is they have created a product that is so well loved. It is America's sport right now. People love it. And they basically just run under the assumption that when something goes wrong, they're going to point to the football. The PR people that they have in Roger Goodell's office, Roger Goodell himself, I mean, they're all very, very well versed in making sure that the optics are as good as possible. I said it last week. I'll always say it about the NFL. So I think they're bulletproof because they have made their products so loved. There's so many fans of football. There's a lot more casual fans of football than there ever used to be. You know that. I mean, you go to a Super Bowl party and nowadays more people have been watching the NFL than not watching the NFL. Millions of people tune into the NFL. And so I think that that's what makes it bulletproof. I think the reason why a sport like baseball can't skirt by on a big time scandal is because its fandom is is waning. The amount of fans that tune in casually every single game is not very high, whereas the NFL every single week, oh my God, they're making money hand over fist in ad revenue and just TV revenue. And so I think that's what they're able to do. Deshaun Watson happens and they make a misstep in in doling out justice there. But guess what? Hey, football week one. And we all forget about it. That's just what happens every single time. I think the NBA, the NBA is probably the only closest one to that. And, and NHL is too regional to to really care about that kind of stuff. I think that it's very localized in that regard. But the NFL is easily the most bulletproof in, in all of sports. Do you think that part of it is because of how diverse the fan base of the NFL is compared to other sports? I mean, and, and this is, I'm making some assumptions here, but I think that based off certain demographics that follow the NBA versus certain demographics that the majority will follow a sport like baseball and that culturally play into how they react to different things or how people who maybe aren't a fan react to things that happen in one of those leagues or the other in a polarizing way where the NFL literally has everyone, massive numbers from every walk of life that are huge fans. And not that there aren't in these other sports, but I feel like it's a little skewed comparatively speaking. And like I said, I, I know I'm making some pretty broad assumptions here, but I feel like there may be something to that in some way. And like what I mean is crusty old stuffy white guy that's a fan of the, his baseball team that just doesn't have any tolerance for change, whether it's of the rules or whatever, get, gets pissed off at a bat flip and that kind of guy that really is has the ability to make something out of nothing in a sense. Or I don't know. I just think that maybe that could have something to do with it, why those sports aren't able to skate past some different things as quickly as you may see the NFL. I think it's just pure volume. It may not be demographics. It could be. But with demographics come different cultural differences that come into play. I mean, anything that offends an old, crusty white guy won't necessarily offend a black guy, but it doesn't necessarily mean it won't be in reverse, right? I mean, you have Hispanic right. folks and everything, and there's different things that trigger different people. One thing I know that triggers just about everybody is when politics gets way too intermixed in sports. And I think the NFL has done a pretty decent job of not ramming it down your throat because, honestly, the brand 
branding is not very out there. You see the things about, uh, you know, equality and so forth in the end zone and all that, but people really aren't paying attention to that. I know that advertisers think that people are, but they're paying attention to the people on the field and they have their loyalties. And I think that it's just a matter of there's so many fans and they stay mostly out of the political spotlight and they give you a good product. You can't sit here and tell me that the NFL isn't a good product. The numbers would suggest that people think that it is. And now that they have it on something like Red Zone, where you can just have everything at your fingertips, just rapid fire. I mean, my gosh, that's the best way to get casual fans. It's one thing that baseball is missing. And that's why I think that the NFL can slide by on some things and they're going to get hit every so often with PR backlash or whatever. But they're going to weather that storm because the product is always so damn good. And you and I both know that as soon as Sundays start to get NFL football, our eyes gloss over. We're ready to go. Yeah, for sure. And I've thought this before watching a game and you see like in the end zone, it'll say equality. And I'm like, I think to myself, I'm like, that is genius because it can mean so much to so many different people. And you're not going to find a single person probably that says, I have a problem with equality. I mean, just the thought that is behind that, you know, because I mean, just in general, like most people are going to say like equality, I can get behind equality. And it's the least controversial, but most meaningful thing in one word. And I I think that's genius marketing on their part. Well, we can talk the NFL now because you brought up something in the draft. And this, again, speaks to what we're just talking about, getting the casual fan. And you talked about, is there anything in sports entertainment, basically, where there is such a drop off between the first round of the draft and every other part of the draft? And you and I, I think, have been under the assumption that the draft is not for casual fans. Did you happen to see the number of people that attended the draft in person through the entire weekend? Oh, I didn't see what the number was. I'm sure it was a ton, though. 55 million people or something like whatever it was. It was some crazy number. Maybe it was people that watched on TV. I don't fucking know. Either way, it was a very high number of people that consume the draft in some way. And that to me, that's casual fandom. That is casual fans coming to the yard to watch the NFL draft. And I think it has to do with the product on there. I mean, you had big time artists that were playing music, all the people that are doing guest pickers. I mean, they're celebrities. It's connecting sports in the NFL to other parts of our society, whereas most of the time, I think through most of our lifetime, sports was its own thing. There were very few players who actually transcended their sport and became part of the cosmos of everything. Remember O.J. Simpson doing all those commercials? He went from being a sports figure to being somebody that was a celebrity. And nowadays, we see a lot more of that. They're bringing more of that in. And the draft isn't for... It isn't for casual fans and necessarily the picks that are being had, but for some reason, the product has been put on in a way that people relate to it and people watch it. Well, I think one thing that's helped is them moving the draft, taking the draft on the road from city to city. And it's always fun to tune in and see, hey, what's the setup look like? How are they doing this? How are they trying to tie in the infrastructure and culture of this city into the draft in some way? That's one thing I think that's helped. Another thing is being in the first round, especially the first round being its own standalone um, thing on Thursday night now, is they have very in-depth stories on all of these guys. They always have some sort of human interest story on everybody. And even if you're not necessarily into the football of it, let's say if it's a wife sitting there with a husband, you know, she may just you know, she might get pulled in by the human interest story that's happening. And in that first round, I think some people don't realize is even if those guys never play a snap of football, their lives have just changed in a significant way because there's some pretty significant guaranteed money that's going to go going to those guys for being first round draft picks. And let's just call it what it is. There's a significant number of people of, of these guys who get drafted into the NFL 
that come from some pretty significant poverty. And to see them, I mean, they are basically changing not just their own lives, but the lives of their families and possibly for generations to come. And so that's why you see the families being so happy and the tears and those sorts of things, because this is a major life-changing event that happens. Now, sure, there's the underbelly of are there people there that are preying on some of these uh, young athletes and, and trying to capitalize on their success. Of course, that happens. Just the, I had someone ask me one time a few years ago, like, why is that guy crying? I'm like, because his whole, that dude was probably didn't have a pot to piss in, you know, uh, 10 years ago. And here he is. And I mean, he could buy a thousand pots to piss in now if he wants to. Maybe that's the angle. And I heard a debate today talking about Will Levis. Now, Will Levis was a quarterback prospect and quarterbacks generally go in the first round if there are enough of them needed. And Will Levis was projected to be a first rounder somewhere in the first round. I think he had like less than a 1% chance of not getting picked. And as the draft night went on, they kept showing him, kept showing him. And the debate I heard was whether the NFL likes that or not. And I think that the NFL does like that because that's what bringing people continuing to watch the draft. I mean, we watched that. I wasn't necessarily gripped by it, but there are probably a lot of people for whom that was, as you pointed out, a human interest part of it. It was emotional. They wanted to see what was going to happen. It almost turned into reality television. And that poor guy sitting in the green room, embarrassed. He's the last guy in the green room. and He doesn't get picked on day one. And there's so many factors into it. And I don't know if, did you see his reaction when he actually did get drafted? He went back home, decided not to come back to Kansas City, gets that phone call early in round two, and just, he is elated. And as, as you pointed out, it changes his life and it humbles some kids. And you talked about not having a pot to piss in. A lot of these athletes have been playing football since they are like five years old. They have dedicated their whole life to playing football. And being a professional is basically reaching the pinnacle. And as our friend of the show, Myron Flowers, once told me, he tells every one of his athletes when they get drafted or if they get drafted, you're closer to the end of the journey than you are the beginning of the journey. So make sure you take this seriously and make the most of it because a lot of these athletes, they're done when they're in their mid-30s and then they have to figure out what else to do with their life. By the way, I did misspeak. It was a total audience of 54.4 million throughout the entire week watching the NFL draft. And that's just remarkable numbers. No, that's huge. And like you talked about, Will Levis, I think that if the NFL didn't like them showing the guy that's falling through the draft sitting in the green room, we wouldn't see it anymore, right? Because we've seen it happen time and time again. You know, Aaron Rodgers and I know Brady Quinn slipped, I think, a little way. I mean, there's a few over the over the years that I can recall. And I, I wasn't too familiar with some of these guys' backstories leading up to the draft, but I've heard more since the draft. And it doesn't sound like Will Levis, he kind of left a bad taste in some teams' mouths throughout the, the interview and the workout process. There was certain, I think it's, I heard something like he refused to work out for any team that wasn't inside the top 10 or something and or interview. And he, I mean, just some weird things like that that happened. So like you said, you know, maybe this is a case where it's nice to see he appreciated the fact that he was drafted. And maybe it is a little humbling uh, to a guy that maybe had higher hopes and hoped that he was going to get picked, you know, in the top 10 or at least in the first round. Uh, maybe this will ground him a little bit and be the, the little edge or the chip on the shoulder he needs to propel him some success. To be the next Ryan Tannehill for the Tennessee Titans. You never know. I think another aspect of the draft that has added to its success, it used to always be at Radio City Music Hall. Now, you and I are both suckers for tradition, so I always love that kind of stuff where they always do it the same way, have the same place, right? There's this pop and circumstance. And I was definitely not on the bandwagon of, hey, let's move this around. 
But I think making it a traveling show, it is including a lot of other fan bases in cities because the NFL is international. It's global at this point now. And so why don't you make it in as many places as possible? And all these cities that have had the NFL draft have 100% shown out. It's basically become college game day. You see all the turnout in game day. Remember when they were in Nashville and they had the entire street blocked off and just thousands and thousands of people? You saw that in the first round this past weekend in Kansas City. They're very passionate about their about their team. And man, they showed up. And I have to say, I think that's part of it. When you see all these different fans there and it's coming to a city near you, hell, if the draft was in Indianapolis, I might fly up there to go to the draft with you just because, say I did it. And maybe that's where they're getting a lot of the hook. The NFL knows exactly what they're doing. Every single thing that they do is intentional. And a lot of it seems to work. So one thing I noticed that I was underestimating about the draft. And when I was sitting there watching you, Dave and Cleve on political football, doing the live draft show and chiming in in the chat and stuff, following along with the draft, with your guys' commentary, I was like, man, this is so much more. Because I, I thought a few times, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just shut off the shut off the show and watch the draft. But it was so entertaining to watch the draft with the commentary of trying to predict who's going to be picked or reasons they will or won't or the wrong picks and why this guy didn't go here and having all that. And honestly, I enjoyed hearing it from a sort of, uh, as I always call it, I'm going to coin the phrase, the every fan perspective, as opposed to from Mel Kuyper and Mike Greenberg, right? It it was kind of nice to just hear like regular fans talking football a little bit. And I imagine that's what it would be like if we were to go to the draft, because I I would initially say I'd have no interest in going. But with the way they're doing it now, especially being in different cities, if you're going to go with a couple buddies that are interested in football, you know, that's all we're going to be doing the whole time is standing there, like looking on our phones, talking back and forth. I think they'll take this person here. I think they'll take that person there, which normally I wouldn't give a crap about it. But I think you probably get soaked up into the atmosphere being there. And it would be a really good time. Yeah, and it would probably be like that fan fest that Beans talked about whenever the NFL goes over to London. You just kind of meet a whole bunch of different fans. You drop all of the rivalries that you have, I would assume, and you just kind of buddy up. I mean, you and I would be perfectly fit there. We would go there and make friends with as many people as possible. I feel like we'd hang out in Colts territory, Patriots territory, and just sort of go all over the place, try to meet some Man Campbell fans over there in Lions country. It would be a good time. And I think you and I underestimated the draft. And I know I always poo-poo on the draft and the combine and all that stuff because the football part of it, I don't necessarily get into. I'm not invested in the combine or invested in the draft because I don't really follow college football more than a casual watching, basically. And I think I did underestimate how people get into it. And I think there is a camaraderie to it because it's keeping football alive throughout the year. That's what the NFL wants from us. They want us to think about football 365 days a year and making the draft that way, making it interactive and getting people to care about it. People like us who have been on the fence about it and don't really care, it is different. And I think in today's world of content creation, you can hop on a live stream while the draft is on, talk about it with your friends. And if you're lucky, you'll get people like yourself who actually enjoy it and participate. And I don't have a lot to say about where guys are going to get picked or what have you, but I do know how to put on good content and have a good time with some friends. And I think it was that. And there's probably a lot of that the other night. Oh, absolutely. And it's more fun hearing it from not that you know, the Mel Kuypers of the world are really experts, right? Other than the fact that he has more access than the average person. But it's fun hearing it from the average person because they're going to be wrong a lot. And sometimes their takes are going to be very irrational and crazy and very fan-driven in some cases. And it's just, it's more fun because I think it gets it gets more of a polarizing reaction out of, out of someone when you're hearing that 
as opposed to, I think, when you listen to the primary coverage on ESPN or wherever, it's going to be pretty straight down the middle. They're not trying to fire anybody up. They're mo- more about just trying to try to inform people and make themselves look good uh, for the most part. But it, it, to circle back to how we started this conversation about the draft, it is so interesting because what other sports event that gets that many, you know, 54 million eyes on it, what other sports event like that starts out with the best part and tapers off from there. Everything else builds to the ultimate, you know, crescendo at the end. Any other event that you can think of, you know, even if you get into like boxing or MMA or pro wrestling, right? The main event is at the end, not the beginning. And in this case, you know, it's like you're getting the the main event. I mean, even the most important pick is the very first one that happens and it, it sort of tapers. So now it gets interesting, but for the casual fan that we always try to talk about, you know, after the first round, I think it does probably fall off for most. I think that it does fall off in interest and that's just the way that it is designed because if you're bad, you get a high pick and those are the teams that have the most hope and the teams that need the most help. And so the first round does matter because those are probably where a lot of people are more familiar with a lot of these guys. But even I am not super, super, super familiar And I saw the stat, actually. Last year, I think roster makeups was like 18% of all the rosters in the NFL were first-round draft picks, or maybe it was 8% or something. Most of them came from rounds four through seven. So all these guys that are picked at the end are the ones actually contributing to the product for a long time rather than these guys that are picked on day one. And we just, we focus more on day one. And there's not many things that, as you said, crescendo at the beginning and then sort of peter out. Like you and I probably did not watch a minute of draft coverage after that first round. I might have turned on early second round because we're at home. It's a Saturday. But I'm not glued to the TV all over that seven rounds. And that's just not how it works. But I want to circle back using all the topics we've talked about. We've actually come full circle here. We talked about fandom when it comes to teams losing. We talked about fans when it comes to the NFL being bulletproof in draft. And now we're going to get into ownership and we're going to kind of even go further back. We talked about Kansas City and all these different cities that have sports teams being very passionate. And Oakland, California is a fan base that has been passionate for their sports teams, I think, for a pretty long time. You got the Warriors now who had a storied history back in the 70s and they've obviously had a lot of success here. But your team, the Oakland Athletics, have been a talking point this year because the news broke that they're going to be moving to Vegas. Now, you and I talked about how Vegas is going to become the epicenter of sports pretty soon. They're going to have a professional sports team, all four of them, and their sports betting is legal now and all that stuff. But the A's have been in Oakland for so long, and it seems like they've been trying to leave for as long as they have been there. And they're leaving behind a city that wanted to keep them But the team wanted to use taxpayer money to basically get a new stadium. And that's a lot. There's so many there's so much of a dynamic between these cities and these professional sports leagues and the way that things are now. There's not a lot of places for baseball teams to move. And Oakland is kind of getting screwed, although they had a franchise for how many years, 50, 60 years. And what do you feel or how do you feel about these cities and or these teams? And do they have an obligation to the cities that they're in and the fan bases that have dedicated their time and their money to these these teams for decades? So. I'm going to say this, the town, the city needs the franchise more than the franchise needs the city because the franchise could always move to another city. That might be kind of cold hearted, but that's just the truth. The revenue that these franchises bring in to these cities through restaurants, bars and everything else, probably just general tax revenue period, you know, the shit sold at games and stuff has got to be tremendous in most cases. Now, what I'll say, though, for a group of people or a city or a fan base, it's throwing such a fit 
about losing their team. Where have they been? Where are they hiding at? I've seen these games. There's nobody there. I mean, there was a altercation. I think I might have been like the Cubs were playing them. There was a manager umpire altercation. And like on TV, you could hear every word because there was 17 people there. I mean, it was unbelievable. And another thing is, if you look up any list, worst stadiums in Major League Baseball, the Coliseum is on that list. And it's not like it's just now the worst because they've built a lot of really new ones. No, it's been the worst for a long time. There are stadiums that are over 100 years old that people hold higher regard than that place. And I do think to some degree, the city has has to kind of own up, you know, and, and I don't know what tried, what deals have tried to have been on the table over the years between X amount percentage comes from the ownership, X amount of percentage comes from the city, that sort of thing, if that's even been discussed. But I mean, hell, if we've, we've seen the product that the A's put on the field most of the time. We know what their payroll is. I mean, they won't pay for players. What makes you believe that they can or would pay for a stadium? I don't know. I mean, the writing's been on the wall for this move for a long time. And I think once the Raiders left town, it really like accelerates. But doesn't this expose how somewhat broken sports are? Because when we talk to Beans and Yaz, or when you talk to them, I was not present for that, but it was still something that we reference here. There's an ownership that I think fans feel about their clubs and the ownership of those football clubs reciprocate. They feel the same way about it. But here in the States, it's all about making money. Daniel Snyder, we talked about him last week or the week before. All the shit that he did as owner of that organization, he made a cool six and a half billion dollars selling that team. He was forced to sell the team, forced to make a humongous profit from what he paid for it. And that happens all over the place. The ownership of the Oakland Athletics have not put a quality product in the field consistently enough for fans to go there. And I'm with you. Where are the fans? Where have they been historically? They have definitely had a passionate fan base for a long time. But after a while, when you're putting crap out there, the fans are going to go away because it's just like any other product. It's very difficult to put your hard-earned money and time into something that's terrible. And one of my stats of the week are going to be about the Oakland A's and just how terrible they have been. But I just do not think that the ownership feels any sort of pull toward the towns that they're in. There's a lot of franchises that are going to be someplace forever. There's no way the Red Sox would ever leave Boston. There's too much history there. And it's a big city. There's a lot of money to be made. But Oakland, not really a big city. Moving to Vegas will make those owners a lot of money. Will it improve the quality of the product on the field? Probably not. Because if they're going to run the franchise the same way, then they're just going to get the same product that they always had. And that's the sad referendum that I think we're bringing up here is you you nailed it 100%. The cities need the teams more than the teams need the cities. And that's why there are a lot of cities out there that would love to have a baseball franchise. Even cities that had one, lost one, we're going to retread it. Do you think Montreal would love to have a version of the Expos back? 100%. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I heard something earlier where they said, okay, okay, this move to Vegas sort of opens the door or is going to speed up expansion in Major League Baseball. And the number one city that everyone's mentioning is Nashville. And an interesting sort of uh, part of that story that I had never considered is they say that, you know, obviously ownership, I think, has to vote on any expansion and be on board. And I don't know what percentage of yes votes they have to have to make this stuff happen. But they say, like, for years... And for the future, like the, the Atlanta Braves will do everything in their power to keep a franchise out of Nashville, out of Charlotte, out of anywhere in the South. I mean, because they have the largest geographic region as far as fan bases go out of the entire, probably out of any team, really, in all sports. I mean, because they they basically have the whole South on lockdown. And I, I mean, I've heard an argument that you could say there are more Braves fans that live in Florida than there are fans of the two teams. And, and so now obviously in Florida, I think you get sprinkled in a lot of everything else because of the people that move there. 
I mean, it, it's insane. And so, but I do think that Nashville is one of those big cities that is ready for a professional franchise, a professional baseball team for that matter. Charlotte, like I said, is another one. Uh, Salt Lake City is one that's been mentioned several times. Portland gets thrown out there quite a bit. And then, of course, you know, Montreal, Vancouver, even Mexico City uh, was mentioned at one point in time. And so it would be interesting to see what, what kind of happens and how things transpire. And I do also want to hear your thoughts when we're talking about moving to Vegas. What NBA franchise would be most likely to move there to round out the big four? You know, I don't know if they'll ever be an NBA franchise there or not. I'm not sure how Adam Silver feels about there actually being a franchise in Vegas. Obviously, the NBA wants to be a part of the sports betting stuff and make money off of it. But I'm not sure how much the optics of it they want for a team in Vegas. Now, if you look at the teams around the league, the Charlotte Hornets would be a perfect example because they were a franchise then they weren't a franchise. Now they're back to being a franchise, but they've sucked the entire time that they're there. What about Oklahoma City? They were the Seattle Supersonics. That was the Seattle Supersonics. I will say the city of Seattle got so screwed by the Supersonics leaving. They loved that team. They still talk about that and want that team in Seattle. That is a very, very passionate city for their sports teams. And I know that the Seahawks have had a lot of a lot of coverage about the 12th man. But man, those people show up like those people show up. So the question becomes for Vegas, like, well, do you want an NBA franchise there and which one are you going to move? Because there's no way the NBA is going to expand. I actually do believe that these sports teams are probably about as big as they could get. 30-something teams is probably about as big as you could get. Like, do we really want to add another team to the NBA when we have all these teams that haven't made it to the playoffs in forever? No, because we want, we don't need more teams. We want more parity. Let's make the teams that we have actually better. And in baseball, do we need more of that? We already have, what, 10 or 12 franchises that are blatantly not trying to win. The Pittsburgh Pirates are one of those. They just happen to be winning right now. Will that last all season? I have no idea if it'll last all season, but they're not in the business of winning. So I think Adam Silver is smarter than that. I think that if he could find a viable franchise to move there, he would for the betterment of the product. He's not just going to put one there because they're not going to expand. And I'm not sure he really has the appetite for it. That's just my personal opinion. I don't actually know. They'll probably announce the team next week. No, that's a good point. And I mean, I, cause I do think that out of all the out of all the professional leagues, sports betting has sort of, you know, maybe cast a shadow over the NBA more than some of the others because there have been some very blatant instances where it's occurred fairly recently. So I, I could see your point there. And, you know, you talk about sports leagues being smaller. I was actually, when I was kind of considering a pick of the week earlier, I was dabbling. I was like, you know what, let me go see what's going on in the Premier League. There's only 20 teams in the Premier League. That's smaller than every single professional league we have here, but then they do, they use relegation. And so you think that, you know, man, it's like, hey, instead of expansion, let's take Major League Baseball, cut it in half, you know what I mean? And take the top half and use relegation. I mean, it'll never happen. It's just a fun thing to talk about as fans. But that's a good point, though. You know, how, how much bigger can you get? Are there enough professional level NBA, NHL, NFL, MLB uh, level talent? Is there enough talent that can play at that level out there to create two, three more teams? It can be competitive. I mean, because you look around, right? Every league has one, two, three really shitty teams already. Do you just want to add to that? Because, it, you know, that might be what happens. Well, now you, you don't want to get to a point where it's like half the league sucks. No. And honestly, hockey is doing this the best because they have a salary floor and a salary cap. So you can't be worse than this and you can't be better than this. And look what happens in hockey all the time. A new team generally emerges, and there's a lot of parity in hockey. From one year to the other, you go from worst to first. The Seattle Kraken last year were an expansion team. Terrible. Worst record in the league. They just knocked off the Stanley Cup champions in year two. 
How cool is that? I mean, doesn't that what we want out of sports? If we add more teams to some of these leagues, I feel like we're not going to see it. And that's just not what we need. But the other part of it, too, and this is for another time, is how many viable cities are there and what franchises would want to go there? Like what sports? The NFL is only going to go to a major market now. You'll never see the NFL in like Salt Lake City, Charleston, South Carolina, anything like that. It needs to be viable and for the NFL needs to be able to make a lot of money off of it. And I think that's the that's the interesting aspect is we may have come to the precipice of are there enough places to put these cities? Because you nailed it earlier too. A lot of these cities that already have a, have a team are not going to want a team close by. Portland will never get one because the Mariners are going to be like, mm-mm. You're not putting a baseball team in Portland. We've got this on lock. We need all those people. The Atlanta Braves. Now, the Atlanta Braves, too. Remember, they were syndicated on TBS. They have a national following now. And they have fans all the way up to Charlotte, all the way down to Florida, and all the way west to Texas because they have literally everything geographically. Are they going to want to see a team anywhere near them? 100% no. This is all very, very fascinating. And I'm telling you right now, I don't think a lot of sports podcasts are getting into this because they're talking about draft grades and all that stuff. I have an appetite for this kind of stuff. I know a lot of people find it boring, but I love it. The behind the scenes stuff, all of the in between the line stuff, this to me is much more compelling than anything that happens on the field. I agree because this is the crap you sit around and talk to your buddies about when you're talking about sports. You're not talking about draft grades in most cases. And because who really cares? What's it mean? It's just an arbitrary letter that they give. It doesn't mean crap as far as how it ultimately turns out. And we talk about you know, going back to the Atlanta Braves in the South. Traditionally, in college baseball, the best college baseball programs are in the South. They're in the SEC, right? Your LSUs, your Florida States, you know, Alabama, all of them down there. And to think they only have one prof- or one professional baseball franchise in the whole region is absolutely crazy. But the reason for that most likely is, is you know, for the longest time, there hasn't really been a city in that that geographical area that could sustain a pro franchise um, outside of maybe New Orleans. And then obviously now Nashville is really kind of boomed. And then we talked about Charlotte as well. Beyond that, I mean, you're not going to put a MLB team in Birmingham, Alabama, or I mean, Mississippi, I mean, I don't know, Mississippi even have a big fucking city. I don't know. No, I just, mean, <laughs> no. you know, I, and so there's just nowhere else, man. And it'll be interesting. though. I, I think Nashville will happen. I mean, out of all the expansion or anything in all of sports, now, whether it's expansion or like the Rays moved to Nashville or something like that, I do think you will see an MLB franchise in Nashville in the next, I'll say 10 years to be conservative, almost certain. Is that a pick of the week? Yeah, we'll just have to make sure write that thing down. We'll have to circle back here in ten years when we're when we're nationally syndicated and say, hey, remember that day ten years ago when we were doing podcasts on our laptops? Absolutely. And if you have a city that you live in that you think should be a part of this expansion, don't forget to call the show. Area code 703-718-6314 is the number. Call, leave a message, leave us a story. We'd love to hear from you. And coach, it's time to have some fun. OTW of the week, where Coach and I like to have a little bit of fun to do our own little thing. And we always start with Iceman Stat of the Week. Coach, I have a few stats of the week for you this week. Are you ready? Iceman, I got to tell you, nothing gets me firmer than a few stats of the week. So let's hear it. I'm not sure Ryan's going to like to hear that. However, we were talking about the Oakland A's earlier, and I told you I had a stat of the week. I actually have two stats of the week that speak to just the ineptitude of the Oakland A's. So we are now finished with 
the month of April, and the Oakland A's are the first team in Major League history to have 23 or more losses before the month of May. Wow. I mean, that's insane. I mean, because they're, I, I know personally, there have been a lot of really bad Cubs teams over the years. And to think that they've outdone some of those or you know, just some of the, I mean, baseball's been around a really long time. And for that to be the first time it's happened is insane. Last time I checked, they were 5-23. and 23. There is nothing good to say about that. However, Another stat for you about the Oakland A's. The last time an Oakland A's starting pitcher won a game was the day after Aaron Judge hit his 62nd home run, which was on October 4th of 2022. Wow, that's insane. Yes, so the Oakland A's are really, really bad. However, when it comes to the things that we talked about earlier and you talked about the Bruins having a historic season, there are four teams in the history of the four professional sports in America that have the best records or the historically best records in their respective sports. The Boston Bruins of this year, the 2001 Seattle Mariners, the 2015-2016 Golden State Warriors, and the 2007 Patriots. What all four teams have in common, not one of them won their championship that year. It seems like that always happens. It's It's been like a common trend. I, I still think that when it comes to playoff time, like go with the hot hand. Who's on a roll? Who's been playing the best recently? And it's always the goalies, man, in hockey. You get that goalie, as they call it, standing on their head, and you're never going to get by. Okay, last fun stat of the week. We talked about Coach Prime last week. Well, this is a Deion Sanders-related stat that I had last week and didn't give it. Deion Sanders is one of two players in NFL history to score a touchdown six different ways. Interception return, punt return, kickoff return, receiving, rushing, and a fumble recovery. Wow. So do you say is the only person to ever do that? One of two. One of two is the other one. I don't know. It, doesn't, it didn't say that. The graphic doesn't have that. We don't have an intern here to do this. I'd be crazy. I want. I think one of two, though, man. One of two would be interesting. We'll have to look that one up because I'm very curious who that might be. Other than that, though, that's really impressive. So the only thing he's missing, did he ever pass for a touchdown? Nope. At least not that I'm aware of. I don't think that he was a two-way player in that regard. But Dion did have a great career. He was certainly a dynamic player. He's proving to be a dynamic coach, despite the fact that the transfer portal is just like a box of tissues that they're going through. It's kind of nuts over there. But I thought that that was a fascinating thing. But I just, the stats of the week, there's so many of them. Oh, you know what? I do have one more for you. Your boy, Eric Spolstra, became the fifth winningest coach in NBA playoff history, and he just passed Larry Brown. So uh, to add to the Eric Spolstra uh, shame on my my end here, I was listening to a nationally syndicated sports talk show earlier today, and they talked about how they were talking about Steve Kerr and the Warriors and how well they've played, and they're going into the series here with the Lakers, and they said, well, they go, Steve Kerr is good enough for one win. Like, you know, you're going to get one win on coaching alone because he's going to outcoach the other team, which again is contrary to my take last week of where I said they're meaningless. And then the the host said, he's just like Eric Spolstra. Eric Spolstra is always good for one win every series because he's going to outcoach the other guy. And I was like, man, what a terrible take that was. It wasn't a good take, but the funny part is all the people that are around him and Eric Spoelstra is number five. So the only people that he hasn't passed are Phil Jackson, of course, Pat Riley, who you named, Greg Popovich, who you named. But one coach who's above him that totally threw me for a loop that you did not name is Doc Rivers. Yeah, when I saw that, you sent me that picture or whatever, and I was like, shit, I totally forgot about Doc Rivers. He had great success in Boston, but he was still, he had some success with the Clippers, didn't he? A little bit, yes, but he did win in Boston. But the funny part is now Eric Spolstra has more playoff wins than Red Auerbach, who won like 14 titles. <laughs> crazy, right? You know, but hey, whatever, man. Eric Spolstra is going to go down in the, the annals of history as one of the all-time great NBA coaches, I guess.
It's that time of the week again, folks. Coach's Pick of the Week. I have really good news for everybody. The Coach's Pick of the Week for the last two weeks have finally come to fruition, and we are back, baby. We are back, middling in mediocrity. Actually, right now, Coach is a loser. He is 2-4 and four after starting 1-0. He has gone one and four since then. And you know what? Those Maple Leafs just were pesky and they made it to the second round for the first time in a really, really long time. Man, Canada did not treat you well, man. Winnipeg did not look good. The Maple Leafs move on. You got something against Canada, man? Well, as always, hear ye, hear ye, gambling degenerates. And uh, there was once a great quote I heard that said, uh, there is no greater champion than the one who has fallen but rises to become champion again. And I intend to do just that. And I am not straying away from the great country in the north of Canada. I am taking a single game this time. I'm going to take the Edmonton Oilers over the Las Vegas Knights in game one. That game one's going to happen Wednesday night. So by the time you hear this podcast, that game will have already happened most likely. But we'll have it on tap for next week's record. And one thing I can guarantee you as an expert prognosticator is that this record will exceed the Oakland A's record in the month of April. I guarantee you that I will have a greater winning percentage than the Oakland A's have had in the month of April. So we can even make that the second pick of the week. Oilers overnights. Coaches picks over the A's in April for the win. Edmonton Oilers over the Las Vegas Golden Knights. Coach doesn't really like those Golden Knights from Vegas, but you know what? So let it be written. So let it be done. And there you have it, folks. We have reached the end of the episode. We got into a lot of deep topics. Now, last week, we talked controversies. This week, we talked sports business, really. We can do just about anything, man. And we're not experts at this, but it's a lot of fun for me to talk about these things. And I hope that the listeners love it, too, because it's something that I'm very passionate about. And I'm very, very thankful that I have somebody like you who I can talk about this with, not at the water cooler. Oh, it's great. It's sort of the reason that I got in the podcast to begin with is, I guess, it's like, hey, you know, I think that I I have some interesting banter sometimes, and maybe there are maybe there aren't people out there that would find it interesting too and so it's cool to have the opportunity to get together with you and to talk about sports every week and to be able to put it out there in the airwaves for people to listen and take in and however they choose and i do hope that the the great country of canada does me better this week and we talked about picks i even i'm sitting in front of the wonderful city of toronto i know i wasn't their biggest fan last week but hopefully they will forgive me they are a great fan base we talked about great fan bases earlier and the, the people of toronto are tremendous but again pleasure as always really enjoyed this episode lots of great topics like you mentioned unfortunately it'll probably be uh, i don't know let's we figure something out it'll probably be a couple of weeks before i am back yep coach will be out on vacation next week he will come back healthy relaxed tan hopefully and it'll be another great show we'll put some new content for you together next week maybe we'll call on some old friends of the show to come on and talk a little bit of sports with us but as far as good fan bases we certainly have one ice time nation always brings it every single week you all really do and no matter where you're listening from we definitely appreciate you don't forget to call into the show though 703-718-6314 is the number to give your takes let us know how you like the show or even tell us we're full of shit i'm kind of good with that just call the show let us know a little bit of housekeeping before we get out here though please support the pub time podcast wherever it is you find your podcast you guys are doing a little musical number these days aren't you yeah we're doing a little series we're calling it rhythm and bruise and uh, we're going to highlight four bands over the next uh four weeks and i think just to throw them out there the eagles pink floyd led zeppelin and the beach boys are the four bands the eagles episode should be coming out sometime this week 
I love it. For this particular show, don't forget to visit the Maddie S Media Network to support the other podcasts that we have. If you want to find this show on Twitter at Iceman and Coach and Instagram at Iceman and Coach is the way to do that. Don't forget if you are watching on YouTube, hit subscribe, hit notify, all that good stuff. If you're listening on Apple and Spotify, don't forget to hit follow and give us some ratings. I thank everybody for tuning in this week. I hope this finds everybody well. I hope this finds you safe. And as always, this is Iceman and Coach. The opinions and viewpoints expressed on the Iceman and Coach Sports Show are those of Matt Freights, Brad Powell, and their guests, and not necessarily those of the Matty Ice Media Network. The Iceman and Coach Sports Show is exclusively owned by Matt Freights and Brad Powell and is brought to you by the Matty Ice Media Network.